Hello and welcome to Talking Aussie Books, a new weekly podcast shining a spotlight on Australian fiction. My name is Claudine Tonellis. As a writer and avid reader, I love chatting about books. And in this podcast, I'll chat to authors, publishers and readers, giving you, dear listener, insight into what's hot on the Australian fiction scene. So if you're looking for your next book recommendation or just want to know more about Aussie fiction writers, this podcast is for you. Grab yourself a cuppa, sit back and enjoy. Pamela Hart is a Sydney-based award-winning author and writing teacher. She has published a number of historical fiction titles, including The Black Dress, The Soldier's Wife, A Letter from Italy, and The Desert Nurse, along with a host of children's stories. Pamela started her writing career as a script writer, which is where she began writing her children's stories, later gaining her doctorate in creative writing from the University of Technology. In November 2020, Hachette released Pamela's latest historical novel called The Charleston Scandal a book that Pamela herself describes as a Downton Abbey meets 42nd Street, an excellent tagline, I must say. Set in 1920s London, the Charleston scandal takes a fun and insightful look at the life of a woman who is essentially caught between two worlds, the glamorous life of the aristocracy and the glitz of theatre life. It's about making choices and following your heart. Beautifully written and meticulously researched, this book will have you Googling the Charleston along with a cast of real-life characters that populate this energetic and glamorous era. So it is with great pleasure that I welcome Pamela to the podcast today. Hi, Pamela. Hi, Claudine. Well, what a wonderful book The Charleston Scandal is. I thoroughly enjoyed it on so many levels. And as with all historical novels, I learned many things I didn't know beforehand. But this book is a departure from your previous four books, isn't it? Yes, it is. So the the four books before this, which my readers have come to call the Anzac series, although I didn't call it that, but that's that's what people are calling it on Goodreads is very much based in World War One and the aftermath of World War One. And after writing The Desert Nurse, which which went over the entire war, I kind of felt just I think much like people felt at the end of the war, like, oh I've I've got to get out of the grim. And while I I always try to write entertainment rather than kind of grim realism. Nonetheless, I had had enough of researching how to give amputations, you know, that kind of thing. And so I looked to the 1920s and I came across a story about um, Madge Elliott and Cyril Richards, who were Australian actors who went to London in the 1920s and became stars. And I thought, that's it. That's the beginning of the book. So for those who haven't read it, can you tell me a little bit more about it? Kit Scott, or Kit Linton is her stage name, is a young Australian actress who's come to uh, the West End in London to try her hand at musical comedy. And she comes from quite a well-off sort of aristocratic background on her mother's side. Both her parents are English but live in Australia. So when she gets to London... There is this sense that she's poised between the two worlds, that the aristocratic side of her family feels like, oh, this this is just nonsense, you're trying to be an actress. But she really loves to perform and she's a great dancer. And the other main characters are Zeke Gardiner, who is a Canadian actor who's come over. One of the things I realised in my research was that in London in 1923, people were there from all over the world. It was the year that the Astaire's were the stars of London, Fred Astaire and his sister Adele. Noel Coward was just coming up. But there were people there on the stage from all over the world. And so I really wanted to show that with the main characters. 
And Zeke comes from a much more humble and rather difficult background. And I guess the other main character is is Lord Henry Carlton, who represents the kind of aristocratic side of life that Kit's kind of forced into because of the Charleston scandal. Indeed. So you mentioned that the action of this novel takes place in the year of 1923, and this was a very specific choice on your part, Mm. wasn't it? I wanted the Astaire's in it. (laughs) <laughs> basically I mean that that was basically it I am a Fred Astaire tragic I have seen like everything he's ever done and this was a great excuse to go back and re-watch everything including all the interviews with him but also I'm really into the other side of the story the idea of marrying an actress marrying into the aristocracy that's actually what happened so Adele Astaire his sister was the biggest star in 1923 But she ended up marrying the third son of a duke and moved to Ireland to live in a castle. And so knowing that that was possible, knowing that it was something that happened, gave me that other element in the story of the possibility of an aristocratic marriage. Fantastic and entirely fascinating to me. I think like most people, I know who Fred Astaire was and I certainly remember watching him in films as a kid, you know, Mm -hmm. Dancing with Ginger Rogers. But I feel like there are very few people who would know that he danced with his sister Adele from an early age and that, in fact, she was the real star in that She was absolutely the star. When you read the reviews of their show, Stop Flirting, which was a George Gershwin musical, they go on for like three paragraphs about Adele and then go, and Fred Astaire nobly supported his sister in their dance routines. (laughs) It's like he's very much second string. And one of the reasons we don't know her is because she hated seeing herself on film. So there's literally only one little tiny snatch of her on film. But when when she kind of died to the business, she went to Ireland and got married, he moved into films then. And so... There is this real gap between the people who were stars who moved to film, like Noel Coward did, and the people who were stars who didn't. And the people who didn't, but we've just forgotten who they were, like Madge and Cyril, who were huge. They were huge. And when they they finally got married in St Mary's Cathedral, it was the biggest wedding that Australia had ever seen. It was like Nicole Kidman married Hugh Jackman. Mm. There were 5,000 people waiting outside St Mary's Cathedral to see them come out at a time when, when you know, Sydney only had 100,000 people living here. So, yeah, we forget the people who didn't make that transition to film. So in addition to the Estes, you have a cast of other characters in mm-hmm. this novel which are, in fact, real people. So there's Some are real, Howard, yeah. yeah, there's Gertie Lawrence, Tallulah Bankhead and, of course, the Prince of Wales and Prince George. So mm-hmm. real people into a fictional novel is something that you've done in your previous novels too, isn't it? I have, but not as much. The real people in my previous stories have been quite minor characters, whereas here obviously they're playing a much bigger role. So, yeah, it did take me a lot longer to do the research for this book. Yes, I guess that leads me to ask you what kind of research would you have done to bring these characters to the page? Well, the first kind of, you know, general research you read about the period and so on, but I I did a lot of reading of biographies and autobiographies in particular of people who were friends of theirs. So Gertie Lawrence isn't a big character in the book, but she was a very, very good friend of Noel Coward's and she writes quite a lot about him in her autobiography. So that kind of reading. And then reading their letters. So to get the sense of how the Prince of Wales spoke, for example, I read volumes of letters from him. I think you've done such an incredible job to capture their individual voices in this novel. Thank you. Um, but in addition to, you know, all of those real-life 
people, you've created a terrific sense of place, especially with respect to your descriptions of Kit's work in the theatre, the sights, the sounds, and even the smells. So what kind of research did you do for that part of your story? Well, I was very lucky. I was in London for various other family reasons, but I organised to go backstage into the kind of theatre that they were performing in. So there are quite a lot of Victorian-built theatres in London, and the stage managers there were just fantastic, you know, the, the, sorry, the managers of the theatre. Let me go backstage, stand on the stage, which was a really weird experience with the curtain up because uh, the curtain's normally left down, the fire curtain. Go into the green rooms, look what the toilets were like, you know, all of that kind of stuff, the props room and so on. And that was fantastic. It was very, very generous of them. But a lot of that was like hands-on, hundreds of photos you know, that kind of stuff. I want to talk a little bit more about Kit. And mm-hmm. as you mentioned earlier, she was an Australian who was brought up with the expectation that she would marry well. But mm. she decides instead to pursue a career as an actress in London. And it's while she's working there that she, I think she comes up against this like very obvious class divide. <laughs> Not only is she a colonial, but she's an actress too, which yes. has unsavoury connotations in the world of the aristocracy, doesn't it? Well, not just in the world of the aristocracy, in the world generally. A lot of the kind of history of actresses is closely allied to the history of prostitution. So to be on the stage, particularly because girls were often wearing much less on the stage than they were allowed to wear, generally speaking, they were considered to be no better than they ought to be, you know. And that really... I think really starts to change with film. I, that's where the idea of acting as a something that was respectable, I think that's where it, it begins. And then you have Rada starting at about the same period and so so suddenly it's something you studied, you know, you didn't just get in on your looks. So there's a big shift in how acting is thought of in the first 20, 30 years of this 20th century. But before that, actresses were considered loose women not just by the aristocracy, but by everybody. And when we, you know, we hear about Harvey Weinstein and so on, but the the casting couch goes back a long way. And so very often, you know, girls were asked to prostitute themselves in order to get their jobs. And, you know, that, that kind of stigma carries over. So, yes, Kit's one of a new wave of actors, people who are who are there because they love the craft. You've conveyed the hypocrisy of this world incredibly well, I felt. I mean, princes and earls and the others were happy to party with the theatre crowd, and I use this term loosely, but mm. when it came to anything more serious, these same people became tainted or capable of tainting. Moreover, it seemed that the aristocracy were just as prone to behaving badly, possibly Very much so, so <laughs> because they had the money to do whatever they desired. It was quite breathtaking. One of the things that's worth remembering when you read the party scenes is that drugs had only become illegal in 1920. So, and at this stage in 1923, you could get whatever you wanted on prescription. So if you had a friendly doctor, and a lot of the doctors really resented it. They resented having to write the prescriptions. They thought the the laws were stupid. It was the beginning of criminalisation of drug taking in that period. And so when they go around taking cocaine or morphia, as they called it, it doesn't have the same taint of of illegality then that it does now. And they certainly, it's not really till the 30s that 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 kind of shift of of ideas in Britain. So there was a lot of drug taking and there was a lot of drinking. And I'm really interested to see what will happen in these 1920s because everybody was coming out of a period of extreme tension and extreme grief 
not only because of World War I, but because of the Spanish flu, which killed more people than World War I did. Mm. There wasn't a single person in the world who hadn't lost someone. And much of the kind of frenetic gaiety of the 1920s seems to me, and to the people who lived through it, you can, you can read the books of the time talking about this. It's a reaction against all that death and doom and gloom. And if you had the money, well, you went for it. Well, I guess it's not really possible to talk about this book without talking about the dance after which it was named. <laughs> the <Charles. laughs> There's a double entendre in the title there in that Kit finds herself at the centre of a scandal when she's photographed dancing the Charleston alongside the Prince of Wales. Mm-hmm. But it's not just the fact that he's dancing with an actress, but the fact that they're actually doing the Charleston. What is it about the Charleston that was so scandalous? Well, there's a couple of things. There are things that they said at the time and then there are things that I think... So, first of all, jazz was not very respectable. And the reason it was not respectable was racism. It was black music. And I think that that held over to the Charleston. I think one of the main reasons it wasn't respectable was that it was considered black music and that respectable people didn't dance to that. The other was that it was very, as you danced it, you kind of let go. So it was it was very different from, say, a foxtrot or a waltz, which is all about being contained within a certain silhouette. So in that sense, it was considered vulgar. But I also think, this is just me, <laughs> right? I've never seen anybody talk about it in this way. First dance where the man doesn't lead. Women can dance it all by themselves. Yeah. They don't need a man to dance the Charleston with. And typically it was it was danced in long lines. Think Nutbush City Limits sort of style, <laughs> right? That was how it was danced in the clubs the, yeah. where it started. And uh, later on there was a kind of modified version where you danced in couples, but originally you danced in these long lines. And, in fact, everybody stamped at the same time. Some dance floors in America actually gave way <laughs> under the stamping, which was another reason it didn't have a great reputation. It's one of the reasons I put them in a basement club. I thought I'm just not going to go there. Yeah, I, I feel like one of the reasons it was considered scandalous was that the woman wasn't under the man's control. Now, that's just me. You know, as I said, that's something I've come to think about. Yeah, I think it probably has something to do with it. The idea that everybody's just wild on their own was something that really wasn't thought of as proper, you know, not at all proper, but also racism underneath it all. I do know, by the way, that the Prince of Wales did the Charleston because there was a newspaper report in 1927 about him going to a naval dinner, just men, where they all got drunk and danced the Charleston and and he gave a kind of performance of it to everybody. So we do know that he danced it. But in fact, the scandal itself came out of a real scandal between Fred Astaire and Lady Elizabeth Mountbatten, the person who becomes the Lord Louis Mountbatten's wife, right? And they were photographed dancing the Charleston and it was a big scandal. Mm. And I thought, fantastic, great story, but in order for the scandal to work for my character, I had to flip the genders. And so I thought, who better than the Prince of Wales, you know? Pamela, you wrote a book called The Black Dress, a fictionalised account of Mary McKillop's childhood. that's under Pamela Freeman. It was before I became Pamela Hart for my historical novels. And Mary McKillop being Australia's first saint. So Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you, how did you come to write that story? (laughs) The nuns came to me. They wanted a children's book. 
and I I was not brought up with uh, the Josephites. I was a mercy I'm Catholic, and that's why they came to me because mm-hmm. I, I was raised Catholic. And Sister Kath said, you know, we'd like you to write a children's book, and I went, yeah, no, thanks, Sister. And she went, have you been to the museum yet? It was not long after the Mary McKillop Museum in North Sydney had opened. And my mother had been wanting me to go because <laughs> she had been with the church group, you know. And I went, no. She said, well, come. And I thought, oh, all right, I'll get mum off my back and go and see the museum. And I had been reading a book by Aung San Suu Kyi, you know, the Myanmar leader who was still in house arrest at that time. And I was really struck by when she was talking about the generals saying that uh, there was no anger when she was talking about the generals. It was the generals will realise they've made a mistake and then we'll be able to work together for the good of the people of Burma. And I was very struck by their lack of ego in that. And Mary McKillop, you may or may not know, was excommunicated by the Bishop of Adelaide. There's a letter from her in the museum to her mother saying the poor dear old bishop will realise he's made a mistake and then we can work together for the good of the people of Adelaide. And I was, I mean, not exactly those words, but that that sentiment, you know. And I was just really struck by this echo across the centuries of these two women. And so I got really interested in her and, and Sister Kath loaded me up with an armful of books about her and gave me access to the archives and they were fantastically helpful and they wanted to commission it and I said no because I didn't want them to have any control over what was in it. I thought it was going to be a children's book but it turned out to be a kind of YA adult crossover novel so most people who've read it have been adults. Yes, so huge amount of research for that one, 18 months, solid research. You've got to be careful, don't you, (laughs) when you're writing about a saint. She wasn't a saint then. She was only a blessed. Not only are you an author, but you teach writing. You're the Director of Creative Writing at the Australian Writing Centre, which runs many fantastic courses for writers, and I've taken one of those, as I mentioned to you before we started Mm -hmm. recording. So I wanted to know, for the writers out there who listen to this podcast, what would be your top three writing? Okay, so one draft is never enough. When I talk to publishers on behalf of my students, I always ask them, what is the reason you reject most manuscripts? And they say they're not cooked enough. And by cooked, they mean they haven't gone through enough drafts. It's a good idea. It's not a bad first draft, but it's not it's not refined enough. Uh, it's, it's clumsy. First draft is never enough. So typically I do between six and eight drafts. And people go, what, every book? And I go, yep. I mean, children's picture books, you might do 50 for one of my kids' books. And for adult books, it would be about 13 or 14. So there really isn't a limit to how many drafts I'm prepared to do to make it good. And some of those drafts are quite dramatic. So with the Charleston scandal over the number of drafts, I have thrown away 70,000 words. Yeah, so you've got to be prepared to be radical and do the draft. So that's number one. Number two is inspiration won't get you through. So if you're somebody who has started a lot of things and not finished anything, the, the number two and number three tips are for you. Number two tip is inspiration won't get you through. It comes, it goes and it comes and it comes and it goes and it will come back if you start working on the story. But if you wait for the inspiration to come back and the enthusiasm to come back, you'll be waiting a long time. And the other reason people don't finish is that they try to get the beginning right all the time. But you can't get the beginning right until you've written the end. So the beginning of a book and the end of the book should resonate with each other. We should see the end in the beginning once we've read the full story. But often you don't know where the end's going to be. And the book changes on you as as you write, even if you're a plotter. 
it will change on you. Maybe not the major plot events, but often the tone and the feel, the, the emphasis will change. And you want the beginning of your book to set up the whole book. But if you don't know what the whole book is, you can't do that. So trying to get the beginning right stops people from just keeping on writing. So you just get your first draft out any way you can. It's much better to have a terrible first draft than no draft or to have one perfect chapter and nothing else, you know. So if you're one of those people who is a real perfectionist, I've got to get it right, I've got to get it right, you just promise yourself you can do the 50 drafts if you want to do the 50 drafts. You can do as many drafts as you want to get it perfect. But you cannot get the beginning perfect until you've written the end. My God, I've just had a massive epiphany. <laughs> so what's next for you? Are you working on something else at the moment? Oh, yes, I am. So my next book for adults is very exciting. It's a murder mystery. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Um, so it's contemporary. It's set in Sydney now. It's called Digging Up Dirt. It's volume one of the Poppy McGowan Mysteries and... I'm really excited about it. I've been a, like a crime reader for, since I was very small, starting with like Trixie Bolton. And I've always wanted to write mystery stories. I'm working on the second book now. The first book's coming out in June. I'm really excited about it. And it's kind of like the same sort of level of mystery as the Miss Fisher books brought up today. So if you kind of like Miss Fisher or, and it's a bit funny, so if you like, you know, the Stephanie Plum books by Janet Ivanovich, that kind of reading, so not grim, not forensic, not serial killers. It's entertainment uh, and mystery rather than kind of scary mysteries. And I'm really, really excited about that. And then I'm working on a children's picture book about the Dane Tree. They sound absolutely wonderful. Pamela, if listeners wanted to connect with you, how could they do that? Through the Pamela Hart website, so just Google Pamela Hart. There are two Pamela Harts. There's me. And then there's a African-American jazz singer in Austin, Texas. So if you Google Pamela Hart author and there's a contact Pamela form on the website, um, I love hearing from readers. So uh, I'd be delighted to hear from your listeners. Pamela, it's been such fun talking to you today. I yeah. wish you so much success with the Charleston scandal and your forthcoming title, Digging Up Dirt. I love murder mysteries too, so I can't wait for that one to hit the shelves. Thank you so much for joining me on Talking Aussie Books. Thanks, Claudine. Well, that's a wrap, folks. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes or drop me a line via my Instagram at Claudine Tinellis or on my webpage, claudinetinellis.com. Thanks for listening. Until next time, happy reading.